listeners. Welcome to Infill. I'm Sonia Trous, and I'm here with Rick Collenberg. Rick Collenberg, the author of Excluded, How Snob Zoning, NIMBYism, and Class Bias Build the Walls We Don't See. So obviously, this is a great YIMBY book. You should actually turn this podcast off and go buy it. But if you buy it after the podcast, also fine. So Rick has generously agreed to talk to us about his book. We are in Washington, D.C. right now, um, actually in the offices of Progressive Policy Institute. And they also loaned us a microphone. So thank you, PPI, for helping sponsor this uh, this podcast. So, Richard, this book does have kind of a long subtitle. If you have a different, like, three sentences that you feel like, you know, sums up what the book is about, what would those be? Is rank class discrimination in America that is pervasive, that is designed to keep some people out of out of certain neighborhoods. And that's it's not just bad policy, which is what typically talk about. It's it's also wrong. I guess that's the point I want to make is that the exclusionary zoning policies that ban certain kinds of housing ultimately have behind them this idea that certain people are beneath others and don't belong. And I think that's deeply un-American. Yeah, so how did you get into this? You didn't start out really in housing policy. Yeah, uh, I'm 60 years old. I spent most of my career in, in education. Uh, I've written some about labor as well, but it was really education that led me to housing. Your, your listeners will know already something that I discovered quite late, which is that housing policy is school policy. And in particular, I focused for many years on trying to find ways to bring children of different backgrounds together to learn in school, because that's the way we guarantee equal opportunity. When you have separate schools for black and white or rich and poor, you don't get equal schools. And given that three quarters of American kids still go to traditional neighborhood public schools, not charters, not private schools, not magnet schools, you have to address the housing barriers that keep people of modest means and their kids out of certain certain areas that, that oftentimes have, have really good schools. That's just not fair. Right. So if you want to have school integration and you have local schools, then you have to have neighborhood integration. Right. And, uh, and I mean, we're always going to have local schools in some sense just because most people don't want to send their kids to boarding school. You still have to get there, even if we didn't, you know, have exactly the public school system we have now. Yeah. There, there's a lot of polling on that, actually, that people like the idea of integrated schools, or at least they say they do. But once you introduce the concept of transportation, that's when the support drops off precipitously. And so the best way to get integrated schools is to have integrated neighborhoods. So when you're talking about integration, though, I mean, we, you know, in Yimby world, like a lot of Yimbys listening to this are very motiva- motivated, you know, by racial integration. But that's not really the only thing that you're talking about, right? Right. So in a lot of my work uh, in education and in other fields, I've focused on what I think is a, a blind spot, even even on the left, which is about economic inequality. So, for example, in higher education, a lot of institutions will do a good job of making sure that the schools are racially diverse, and then they'll have 24 times as many as many rich kids as poor kids in in the school. And I see the same thing in housing, where in upper middle class white neighborhoods of highly educated liberals, I think there is a genuine celebration when an upper middle class black family moves in. And that's progress in this nation. There didn't used to be that celebration. But if, by contrast, you said, we're going to make room for some working class people of all races to come in, I don't think there'd be such a friendly 
reception. And so there's this blind spot to class inequality writ large, and you see it all the time in, in the housing sphere. Do you actually, having worked in this for a little bit, do you have a psychological theory about that? So this connects to a fact that your listeners may be aware of, which is that in liberal areas, we find oftentimes the worst forms of exclusionary zoning. And there is some social science research that suggests that educated people who today in America tend to be more politically liberal are less racially biased, which is a positive step, but they're more biased against people with less education. So in essence, more class bias that upper middle class educated people actually actively dislike working class people. And that's that's a troubling finding, but I think it manifests itself in our in our zoning laws where communities do build these walls that effectively screen out people of less. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you in the like otherwise extremely progressive community I grew up in, I noticed as a kid the hypocrisy because they did a very beautiful job to have an integrated school and teaching us about prejudice and yeah, wanting to like eliminate racism and and do everything they could, but it was actually totally acceptable even for adults to just trash, you know, residents of other neighborhoods or people that they thought were uh, were low education. I saw a tweet the other day that I thought was actually very insightful that like people are constantly looking for an acceptable way to trash another type of person. <laughs> and I mean, sadly, it's like I think we do have to be vigilant because we are trying always to find those outlets tragically. New York Magazine had a fascinating article recently about Athens, Ohio, which is where Ohio University is. And it's an all-white community, basically. It's it's wealthy whites, and then there's an Appalachian white population. And there have been huge fights of the upper middle class educated white liberals at the university did not want their kids going to the same school as lower income white people who are part of that Appalachian community. And that just, to me, highlighted that we do have, setting apart the terrible history of, of racism, continuing realities with race, there's something else going on that we need to be addressing. And that's why, in Excluded, I really talk about the, the trends in the country where we're seeing some declines in racial segregation, which is a small positive step, needs to go further. But all at the same time, we're growing apart in terms of income. Class segregation has doubled since the 1970. Racial segregation has declined by 30%. So it's an emerging issue that we have to yeah, and I want to acknowledge that socialists listening to this podcast are screaming right now. They're absolutely <laughs> screaming. They're like, I know the answer. I have all the answers. I'm well-versed in the theory for the answer. You guys are going to keep screaming because this is all from a liberal point of view. But what I actually think it's important. So keeping on, it is incredible. You know, another thing that, like, Yimbies know about is sort of the way that the zoning is used to advance racial segregation that's otherwise illegal. And I think it's actually very meaningful that, you know, or as early as 1917, obvious attempts to have racial zoning were struck down. You know, even over 100 years ago, when people were not progressive, they still knew enough to militate against that. And that 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 was some yeah, that was something that was basically rejected even by by judges, by Supreme Court judges. And so what they allowed to go ahead was very apparent class bias in zoning. And so, you know, a lot of times we I think we get a little bit lost 
kind of realizing, you know, uncovering the like hidden or effective racial segregation that's caused by zoning when like the class segregation is just right in front of us. And that's one of the things that's so exciting and refreshing about your book is that you're like bringing it back up. You know, you're prob- problematizing it. You're like, wait, we can't just say like... <laughs> Obviously, the class bias is fine. Like, you know, the racial bias is is the problem. And when they're both a problem, we need to get back to, you know, also addressing the class bias. Yes. And in the courts, you know, there's long been this distinction between racial bias and class bias. And racial bias is thankfully unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. But class bias is perfectly legal. So in 1917, the Buchanan decision said no racial zoning. And then not many years later, there was the Euclid decision, which said, Oh, class bias is totally fine. Totally fine. And, and that's that's true to this this day. It says something. So it's not just in the culture. It's embedded in our, our laws yeah, as well. Right. Um, it is interesting. You know, I, I have had people sometimes say, oh, why are you so focused on race? You know, when really the class is the issue. But my answer is that's how the law is set up right now. So that's the tool that we have. Actually, I guess speaking of the law, I do want to get to your proposal for a National Economic Fair Housing Act. But I I also actually want to talk a little bit more about the structure of the book, because one of the other things that I did really think was interesting about it is comes from a liberal point of view. You know what I mean? It's this worldview of everybody's valuable. Everybody needs to have an opportunity to make the best of themselves. Yeah, it like tackles this economic sort of oppression head on, which is usually the purview of a completely different social. Well, not completely different, but actually, yeah, quite different social discipline. You know, like I think I was reading something in Jewish Currents, which is like a very self-conscious, you know, socialist magazine. And they the article went out of its way to be like, obviously, liberalism has failed. You know, these are like (laughs) two areas that are a bit sometimes in competition, even when we can have similar goals. So I don't know how how self-conscious that was. For you, or I don't know. Well, for the record, so yeah. I'm, I'm I am a capitalist. I believe in markets, but I do think that you know we have these these issues of class that that get ignored. But I don't want to overstate that because the class bias in zoning clearly hurts Black people much more disproportionately, and it's connected to the racial bias in years past. I have a whole chapter, in fact, about the way in which exclusionary zoning hurts all of us, but particularly Black people because of the history of redlining racial covenants, racial segregation. Your listeners probably know, but, you know, black people were robbed of wealth for generations. And so when you have exclusionary zoning laws, they're going to hit hardest against against black people. And so it's it, it, it's a complicated dialectic between these. So sort of related. I mean, another thing I noticed was that you're, you know, you're pro-union, but also pro-charter school. Isn't that an unusual combination? Yeah, well, I I wrote a biography of Albert Shanker, who was a teacher union leader in New York City and then federally. And he actually really kind of popularized the idea of charter schools. Really? Yes. And (laughs) originally, his vision was, was different than what we have today. There were two goals. One was to racially and economically integrate students. Because the idea was you could put a charter school anyplace. Right. And you can draw kids from different neighborhoods. And so there was this possibility for racial and economic integration. Didn't exactly work out that way in most cases. There are some intentionally integrated charter schools, which I love, but that's that's one of the issues. The other issue is that uh, Shanker 
saw this as a way for really creative, bright teachers who were felt stymied in the traditional public schools to go out and create something better. So he wanted these charter schools to be teacher-led. That is, teachers would have more voice in the charter schools than they did in the traditional public schools. And that almost universally does not happen in most charter schools today. So I am pro-charter, but I, I wrote a book called Smarter Char A Smarter Charter, and it's a very specific type of charter school, a charter school where teachers are given leadership role and can really uh, shine, and where there are conscious attempts to, to bring children of different racial and economic backgrounds together. Yeah, something that's sort of frustrated me about, and thank God it's not my main business, but this controversy is that there are things about charter schools that it doesn't, it seems like, I mean, charter schools are public schools, like there's public schools could adopt, right? I mean, just like the idea of having schools like downtown, right, that draw from different neighborhoods. I mean, having schools downtown really makes sense. If, if adults are working downtown, then the commute kind of makes, makes it easy. Absolutely. I mean, in Albuquerque, other places, they created diverse by design public schools located around areas of work. And we ought to be doing a lot more of that. Unfortunately, there was oftentimes clumsy efforts to desegregate, and there was a big backlash against that. Some of it understandable when people were, you know, their kids were sent across town with absolutely no say in the matter. And so people basically gave up on integration. And the charter school movement mostly gives up on integration. And uh, there are some schools that are, you know, particularly designed for, for given races or ethnic groups. And I think that's a huge mistake for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is the research on where students will do well suggests that an economically mixed environment is far better than a high poverty environment. And the other is it's just, you know, for our national future, we are a society where people are at each other's throats. And if kids can't learn to get along with people of different backgrounds, we're really in trouble. That that was always the the promise of the public education and we're not living living up to it. So I think I think we need to get back to attempting where we can, not everywhere, but where we can to have more integrated schools, which brings us back to housing because that's that's gonna be a key way of, of getting there. So Excluded has kind of different sections, has uh, some history stuff about why readers should care about housing. Um, it has a cool section about uh, various uh, YIMBY efforts that we'll talk about later. But then it has like a whole section about the proposed National Economic uh, Fair Housing Act, like the policy and also like who you've talked to so far. So tell us, yes, tell us about what the core of the policy is, but there's more than just the core of the policy in there. Right. So the idea is that under an Economic Fair Housing Act, a plaintiff could sue a community that was excluding based on income, which is a lot of communities in, in this country. And it's modeled after the, you know, the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which protects people primarily based on race and says that if you can show that a policy has what's called a disparate impact, that is, it disproportionately hurts low income people that uh, the burden shifts to the locality, the jurisdiction, to prove why that policy is necessary to further a legitimate objective. And the real idea behind the act isn't that there'd be a million lawsuits, but rather that you'd have a, a certain number of lawsuits that hopefully would prevail and would tell communities, listen, we want to avoid getting sued. We need to reform our, our zoning laws so that they're not economically discriminatory in a way that we cannot justify by some neutral neutral standard. 
So I guess it would be a new piece of law, right? And would it change the standard? But I know the standard, if you're if you don't have a racial component, is rational basis. Like all all the government needs is a rational basis, which is like the weakest. Yes, it's very weak. There have been times when government's lost, even under rational basis, but it's not useful. I mean, obviously, no one's using it. So yeah, would your would the pol- like would it literally change the standard or? Yes. So the the, the goal is to make it as hard for a community to discriminate based on income as it currently is to discriminate based on race, that those two things ought to be at the same level. And to be clear, I think a, a racist is worse than a snob, but these two groups have something in common, which is that they see other fellow human beings as as less worthy, you know, not people, people who are not welcome in the community. And I think that's both are, are, are shameful. And so that's the moral idea behind it. And, and the reason to call it an Economic Fair Housing Act is to highlight that there is, there is a moral component to exclusionary zoning. We so often emphasize the practical components, you know, drives up housing prices, which is terrible. It makes the environment less, less clean. It stops people from moving to parts of the country where they will get the best jobs. All those things are super legitimate concerns that I talk about in the book. But by framing this as an Economic Fair Housing Act, it's meant to to suggest that economic exclusion is wrong. And by adding the word economic, in part, it's meant to to change the legal standard, but also to to let working class white people know you're you're getting screwed too. Right. You know. Then you build a a more powerful political coalition for change if civil rights is seen as something that affects working class people of all of all races. Yeah, right. You have a lot of good examples in the book of um, efforts that when they sort of focus just on on racial unfairness, they kind of fell flat, you know, because people are selfish. So, you know, so white people were like, well, that's not my problem. It's two things. One is, yeah, white people unfortunately say it's not their problem. The other thing is going back to those upper middle class white liberals who do want the black doctor living in their neighborhood. Celebrate that. They're going to say, well, that's not me. I'm not racist. Right. And let them off the hook. It lets them off the hook. So that's that's another part of the framing here. And I think there is some evidence that this can have some traction. And so in Oregon, there, the Sightline Institute pretty well documented that there was an urban-rural coalition that brought about change, that if you didn't have those rural whites as part of the coalition, the legislation would not have passed. And there are lots of reasons why that coalition came together. But I think to the extent that going forward, we can emphasize that working class people of all races are getting the short end of the stick. That broadens the tent for reform. Yeah, I'm particularly excited about this now. I mean, right now, because the we have an election coming up. You know, we have, I guess it's going to be Biden against Trump. That's what it seems like for now. And, you know, we have this economy that's like supposedly good. There are some Democrats that I think are taking this really counterproductive tack of sort of yelling at people and being like, look at the stats. The economy's good. You know, when people actually feel bad, slightly more thoughtful uh, Democrats are asking a question. If the economy is so good, why do people feel so bad? Which is an improvement. Anyway, the answer is housing. I think obviously, right? Like all of these stats are fine, but housing costs are up tremendously and it's squeezing everyone. And we already know that, you know, four years ago, well, eight years ago, I guess now, Trump won a lot on this speaking to people's, to white people's sense of exclusion. Right. 
You know, I mean, in a lot of contexts, actually, something that I've run up against is I'm like, damn, actually, people like exclusion, right? Like, what do you get in the mail? You get an exclusive offer, mm-hmm. right? Exclusive sale, like exclusive hotel. Exclusive neighborhoods. That, right. That's seen as a positive. This is an exclusive neighborhood. Right. Wow. People love it, right? So it's not it's not always the best messaging. It's, it's not always going to really serve you. Except, but Except if you're excluded. Right, right, exactly. And if we're talking about a a certain set of neighborhoods that have the worst forms of exclusionary zoning, they're not the majority in this country. And that's why I think you saw in in Oregon, there were were legislators from these very wealthy, exclusive districts that that opposed change, but they, they were beaten in the legislature. Yeah. Okay. So it's uh, so this does seem like a time, right? Like we know that Biden has to appeal to voters who he's going to be competing again with this message of like Washington is full of elites. They want to keep you out. Right. Like Trump loved going after limousine liberals um, who actually really are living in the places with the worst zoning. Some of this once Trump was president, some of that salt tax deduction stuff, um, the mortgage interest deduction, like I thought those were very effective political moves and, you know, not wrong. Like there, it, that is a way uh, Democrats love to be like, oh, uh, Republicans are cutting taxes for rich people. But those are ways that Democrats cut taxes for rich people. So I do think there's there's an opportunity here for Biden to kind of outmaneuver if they can get the messaging and the policy right for the Economic Fair Housing Act as an insider. <laughs> what would be the path? Right. Like, well, I think philosopher Michael Sandel has said Trump was very alive to the politics of humiliation. Mm. And I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think on a personal level, Trump felt humiliated at certain points by the establishment. He knew how to exploit people's feelings that they were looked down upon by elites. And unfortunately, Hillary Clinton played right into that in a number of ways. Biden is a different character. I mean, I think he has shown that he's got a different side to him than those those elites. So this would be a perfect issue for him to to exploit that he could say as a matter of racial justice and as a matter of economic justice, it is wrong for wealthy suburbs to be excluding people. And that would go, I think, to the core of Joe Biden's being. So it wouldn't be fake. And I think it could be very effective. And then it ties directly, as you're suggesting, to the to the big issue, which is that people are facing. The big reason they're complaining is is inflation and prices. And that, in turn, is, is so deeply connected to housing. So upper middle class white liberals are kind of mystified why, you know, the economy seems pretty good. Why are people so upset? Because someone like me can handle the inflation. It doesn't, I'm going to be fine paying more. But for a lot of people, this is this is a desperate situation. And so if Biden can say, listen, I'm going to do something that's going to bring down housing costs and make life more affordable for you in so many dimensions, then I think he ought to he ought to seize that that moment. I mean, they called it the Inflation Reduction Act in Congress because they knew people were concerned about inflation. This is one of the biggest ways to fight inflation. You may have seen the headline in Bloomberg that you know Minneapolis, which was a leader obviously in changing land use reforms, is the first American city to tame inflation, and it's because their housing costs have come way down. Yeah, that's a it's a powerful lab. It's a powerful um, justification, or you know proof of concept for some of the stuff we're talking about. So how does this kind of thing, like, how do you socialize a policy like this? Like, how do you, who do you talk to? I mean, because you've already made some progress. 
to be clear, modest process. Uh, we had great conversations with Emanuel Kleeper, who I was grateful blurbed the, the book. And he's a congressman from Missouri, started off in zoning, at zoning meetings. He had a great line when I was testifying before Congress. He said, uh, you know, you learn a lot about human nature when you sit yeah. through a zoning meeting. You see people's true nature come out. And he cares a lot about economic exclusion and racial exclusion. And I've been having conversations about his introducing an Economic Fair Housing Act. It hasn't happened yet, but I hope it will, will happen soon. So I think that's one avenue. There isn't a tremendous urgency because Republicans control Congress or the House right now. I think a next step would be for a state legislature mm. to pass an Economic Fair Housing Act and show that this is a policy that can have a positive effect in people's lives. And then if some states do that, I, I feel like there's an analogy to the minimum wage where states took yeah. lead, passed laws, and then the federal government eventually will catch up. That makes sense. What I worry about, especially because in general, right, housing reform, it's pegged as a uh, a local issue, you know, obviously, or state issue. I mean, a lot of people think that there's no role for the federal government to play. And I'm just afraid, like, if we worked on a state level Economic Fair Housing Act, then that would pigeonhole it further. You know, then it would never get out. of Everybody would be like, oh, well, if states like it, they'll just do it. And now the federal government has, doesn't have to do it at all. Yeah. No, I mean, there is this argument that federal government shouldn't be stepping in. And of course, historically, the federal government's had a huge role in doing all the bad things yeah. on, on zoning. So there's there's actually there's a great responsibility for the federal government to fix, to fix, it, yeah. to fix the problem. So I do think that it's would be considered a big step to pass an Economic Fair Housing Act and that having some state efforts would, would help pave the way for more likely passage at the federal level. I'd like to see it ultimately happen at the federal level right. because otherwise certain states won't pass it. But I'm, I'm just thinking kind of over the long term that one strategy is for states to, to move first. Right, of course. For for particular zoning questions, like I understand why it feels sort of natural for people to do things locally. But we've always had this system of the federal government saying, do what you want, but here are guardrails. You know, do what you want, but we have a constitution. And like this obviously isn't a constitutional amendment, but it's referencing a constitutional concept, which is equal protection in the 14th Amendment. And so as that kind of legislation, you know, that's supposed to actually bring to fruition a constitutional concept and the fact that it goes through the courts themselves, which although I'm not, you know, it's interesting, like many people don't fully appreciate that we have different courts. A lot of people sort of think all courts are federal courts. So in people's imagination, court is already like they think it's like you go to court and then you go to the Supreme Court and that's, you know, that's it. So it, it already has a bit of like a federal, like a lifeguard flavor, you know, I'm the referee. You can do what you want, but I'm the referee. Yes. I mean, the federal obligation has been been met in certain circumstances. I mean, we would not have a, a federal fair housing act if right. if people said, oh, no, any right. local decisions about zoning or even more local decisions about, you know, an individual family deciding to sell to someone else. If that's all decided locally, then we wouldn't have a federal fair housing act. We wouldn't have legislation to to say that you have to provide the right to build a telecommunications industry in this country, that under certain circumstances, a community has to have a cell phone tower to make this system work. And in terms of religious freedom, we've said there's going to be a federal law that says you can't discriminate against 
houses of, of worship in right. your zoning laws. So we, we've, we've already been down right. that road. Right. It's just this would simply be adding one more very, very important expansion to that. Actually, as an aside for the, the cell phone towers, that's, uh, that's a relatively new change. That was another Trump era thing. It used to be that you did have to get a permit, you know, to add cell phone towers. And I'm very familiar with this. My brother has a private, you know, helping people get permits to do different things. 40% of their business was helping like Verizon or AT&T or whatever get cell phone towers. Yeah. So that ruined their business. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's better for everyone. I mean, it really was ridiculous. You know, he was having people, he, he would get Lyft drivers, like all kinds of people to come to the planning commission meeting and be like, I can't have a dead zone. I'm trying to like make a living. I'm trying to call 911. I mean, it was so stupid. And then, of course, NIMBYs came out and they, they were opposed to it. So, yeah, that was uh, that was some preemption. My family embraced, but also it, it really made an impact. It was just recent that they made that change and it was very necessary. And, um, you know, now I guess the federal government is trying to preempt local decisions about building like wind farms um, and other clean energy. And that has mixed success. I mean, even with the preemption, uh, there was a proposal for a wind farm off Cape May that got canceled because of, of local opposition. Okay, so yes, you're right. The federal government already involved in land use, already preempting stuff, already putting putting guardrails, and this would just be a mere one more little little fixing up the rules of the game. So yes, let's talk about what like what could wind up happening. And I'm pro simplicity and even pro what others might consider to be chaos. So, you know, I would want to see things like play out. But there were there are some sort of discussions. I feel like as you've talked to people, there have been people who raised like, oh, well, what if uh, what if something happened that we didn't want? So what are some I don't know if you could talk for like potential outcome. Oh, you mean unintended consequences? Yeah. And so some of my friends in the in the civil rights community were concerned that if you started emphasizing class discrimination, Nation, that would would somehow subtract. That's not really a policy issue, though, right? That's like a political uh, right. So, uh, but that was that was a concern that was raised. I and I certainly take it seriously. But at the end of the day, I think this provides actually another tool, yeah, for Black families that can or Hispanic families that can sue without having to kind of take this extra step to show that there's a racially disparate impact, because that requires hiring statistical experts and others. So that was one of the the objections. I mean, some people would would just rather have the federal government provide incentives mm -hmm. rather than a than a stick. I, you know, I'm, I'm all for incentives, but I feel like you you also need the ability to enforce a, a fairness standard in place. So I've been working with Tom Loftus at the Economic Fair Housing Institute to develop language mm -hmm. that the Congressman Cleaver could could introduce. And we've had those those discussions and, and some back and forth. There was one technical concern. We wanted to make sure that there couldn't be what might be thought of as a reverse discrimination lawsuit. So you could have a community that was poor and a wealthy person wants to get in and uses the Economic Fair Housing Act. Because, you know, we see these statutes turned on their heads in interesting ways. And so we added a provision into the proposed legislation to to deal with that. Um, that's interesting. All right. So also, you know, to be clear, this unlike actually the Fair Housing Act, right? The Fair Housing Act does regulate 
behavior between private parties. Right. But this wouldn't. I mean, there's no world. Like, of course, if you have a business, you have an apartment building, you know, you charge what you charge. Right. This isn't going to interfere with that. Absolutely. No. Yeah. I mean, the, the market, by definition, discriminates based on yeah. economic status. You know, right. You put a house for sale and the highest bidder gets it. That's economic discrimination. That's valid economic discrimination, in my view. What I'm objecting to is when the government exactly in and says there's certain types of people we do not want in this community. And right. We're going to pass a law that makes it illegal to build the types of housing that people of modest means could afford. Yeah. And I think that's a really key thing. I think, you know, yeah, right. You run a business, you decide what you want to sell. You want to sell dog collars and you want them to be $60 and like you try to make your living and that's what you do. But there's no reason that we should be able to borrow government authority, borrow like this little violence that the government has a monopoly on and use that authority to discriminate against people really for any reason. And I do think that we kind of get used to the obvious rampant economic discrimination that exists in the market. And so then when the government does it, it doesn't feel unnatural. It feels normal. Yes. But it is unnatural. You know, the government is a different kind of entity and it's supposed to belong to all of us and represent all of us. So whatever some private individual does, a lot of times they can do it, but that doesn't mean that it's an appropriate thing for the government to do. Yeah. The contrary. I mean, it, it, it's exactly the opposite. Yeah. So that's funny, too. These are markets that are supposed to discriminate based on income, and that's that's fine. That's appropriate. That's what they do. But this is government stepping in and, and saying, well, even if under market conditions, there would be a builder who, who would put in you know multifamily units because there'd be a big market for that. They're saying that's illegal. So it's it's interfering with the market. It's not right. It's not analogous to the market. It's the opposite. Right. Right. It's that yeah, it's actually rich people kind of colluding to subvert the market. Right. Let's like lay it out. Like if this thing was past, you might have some town. I'm thinking of towns and I'm trying to decide whether to put them on blast. I will do it. So like Piedmont is, you know, almost all single family. And so who? Yeah, actually, I mean, the plaintiff could be an individual, but it seems like it could also be a developer or could it just be an individual, you think? I think it should be either. Yeah. So there would have to be probably some housing development at issue. Or do you think somebody could basically just go to any town and you probably have to show you have some reason that you want to live there, right? You work right. there, you can't find housing, you're driving too long, you don't see your kids, so you're experiencing some harm. Most lawsuits, you have to show harm. And, you know, actually, there's there's already some good good legal decisions in Pennsylvania. It's, so this is, oh my God. So speaking of getting legitimacy, right? We were talking before about maybe if a state passes passes this, then it would be more legitimate for the federal government to pass it. But I'm actually thinking now that we should be collecting legal decisions that already exist because like in Pennsylvania, there's already a legal decision that if there's a town that has economically discriminatory zoning and is in the path of development, then in, in the past, it was developers, you know, that were suing to get to get better zoning, to get higher density projects approved that for fair share reasons, um, the town has to change the zoning. So very similar concept that I guess the judges in Pennsylvania found in the in their state constitution already. So, yeah, I mean, you would have to show that you're sort of in the path of development. I think that's an important 
aspect because otherwise. Right. So this individual would be able to basically sue and say, like, invalidate all low density zoning or. I would say the, the types of zoning that can't be justified as necessary. And so that's a very vague answer. Right. But that's the standard under the Fair Housing Act. Right. Under the Inclusive Communities Project litigation. You know, the burden shifts to the town to show that its provision in the law is necessary to promote you know, valid interest. And let's just take a, a more extreme example where even though the, the homes are right near some mass transit, you know, they have a half acre requirement of, and has no multifamily. No, I, I think that'd be hard to justify is it's necessary because, uh, you know, we're, we're protecting the environment. We're worried about septic tanks. I mean, there are a slew of arguments that a municipality will use, but, but I think there, there would be difficulty in, in justifying that. You know what else is so great about it, too, is that really the zoning that the judge would probably order, um, allow to go forward, probably would have to also show that it produces affordable housing like for that market. Right. So this is extremely not one size fits all. You know, in some places, I mean, high density, low density are very relative terms. In some places like uh, 35 units an acre might be actually relatively affordable housing, like really all you need to get the affordability that you need for that that economic zone, you know, for that region. So this could be extremely flexible and still actually pretty responsive to local control. Oh, absolutely. That, that's the reason the, the necessary language right. works. Because, right. yes, it is a federal law, which feels like, oh, my gosh, right. it's federal in scope, but we've got so much variation locally. And yet when the judge applies the law, he or she would be dealing with a particular set of facts, a particular set of circumstances and what else I love, too, I think something that's been very fruitful, like this is what we've seen. I saw this in Florida, and I think they've seen this in, in other state reforms, where like in Florida, there I think it's 102, SB 102. This law said that for any given town, you had to be allowed to build something as high as whatever was the highest allowed thing somewhere else in the town. I can just picture people referencing close by zoning. I think there's something very convincing and very powerful about saying like, look, like feet away, right? Less than a mile away, you have garden court, garden court apartments. Yes. So you can't say that there's something about this area that makes it impossible. It's obviously possible and it's it's and it's nice, probably. So, yeah, this would definitely be a venue uh, for for looking at that and for being able to say, look, right in this other neighborhood, you have this denser thing or in this adjoining city in the same in the same climate, you know, with this with the same kind of economic limitations. Yeah. I, th I think that's an amazing point that I'm taking notes on. <laughs> I, he did. He wrote it down, guys. <laughs> because uh, I think that's a, a, it's just a really cogent argument that one can make. How can you say it's necessary that it will be a disaster if we change our rules when right nearby you're doing exactly that? Right. Our local or nearby community is doing that. So, so I think that would be persuasive. So sorry, Yumbies, this wouldn't cancel all zoning nationwide. It's actually still very pro-local control. So we love local control right now. We love the courts. 
Um, we love the negotiation between the referee of the federal government, the requirement to have economic integration. Another thing that's great about this is if it's if it's an individual and not a developer, then you're talking about basically local advocacy nonprofits really are the ones that are going to be yeah. doing it. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be some person. <laughs> you know, I think that's an important point that you want to power the people who are most likely to bring bring the litigation. And I had a conversation with, with one of your state senators. I'm not your personally, but you, California yeah. state senator, uh, Scott Weiner who said something like this would be extremely powerful politically because if you're trying to go to a community and convince them to to do something and they just say, well, listen, I see your argument, but we just can't do it politically. Being able to say, listen, if we don't do this, we're going to get sued and our hands are tied and it's going to be extremely expensive to the taxpayers in this town if we try to defend this policy that's really indefensible. That, that's just, it's huge leverage. And so people get upset about the idea that you're going to unleash all these lawsuits. And I think that it's actually can be quite efficient if there are a couple of high profile lawsuits that lay down a marker and show that communities are vulnerable and they better get their acts together. That, that would be the aspiration. Absolutely. I mean, you don't have to tell me. We love lawsuits. Yeah. It's your bread and butter. This is our, yeah, this is our bread and butter. Well, it's actually our treat at the end of the meal because mostly, it's mostly angry letters and it's mostly politics. A lot of times, really, the threat is all you need. Many cities will avoid, will do what they can to avoid lawsuits. And every now and then you get a city that's just like, you know, it's like some individuals too that are like, right, but not me, right? Like other people drive drunk and crash, but not, not me. And so, yeah, in those cases, uh, we do have to sue. But for, for the most part, I think you're right. The example is is um, off-putting enough. And it'll work hand-in-hand hand with what everybody else is doing, right? Like we learned about today, like, you know, Montana, they have sort of an, a new little proto kind of fair share requirement, or at least they're supposed to be doing housing plans. States all over the place are actually starting to implement their own versions of what in California we call the housing element process. So this would actually go hand in hand with that. And I mean, even the federal government, right? Like HUD has been asking uh, cities to do these affirmatively furthering fair housing reports. They're just reports. It's really all part of the same idea. Mm -hmm. So they're going to already, hopefully, if they're doing it, they were going to have to put planning resources towards solving this problem and like the lawsuit with a new cause of action. And I think there really is something promising about offering all kinds of people, you know, white and black you know, the opportunity to to break down doors and like work together. There's something really inspiring about that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Republicans have have worked really hard to make culture war, like to make DEI and wokeness a culture war and try to re put people of different races against each other. Right. Um, you know, this does the opposite. Right. It brings them together. They can recognize a common cause that each is being looked down upon and each is being excluded. Each group has their housing prices unfairly increased and, and remind them that they do share this common lot. To me, that's one of the big, big goals of this legislation is to to think more broadly about the commonality. I mean, Heather McGee has this wonderful book, The Sum of Us, where she talks about the ways in which racism hurts white people too. And the argument is, her metaphor is, is it a real life example where the swimming pools were desegregated. Oh my God, I know. And then they filled them in and that actually hurt working class white people as well as black people. And we just need a lot more reminders of that in our society. And an Economic Fair Housing Act goes to an issue people care about a lot. They care about their housing and they see that there are certain communities where kids get a jump start in life and they're, they're not part of that. 
And I think there is a way to cobble together interesting coalitions around around that that could could have a transformative effect even beyond housing itself. Absolutely. I'm really even I was already excited about this. And now I'm like even more bought in just to have the opportunity to have some talking points and platform and organizing reminding people to resist this idea that we should be pitted against each other. Yes. yes. And it's a practical matter. I, I know you've done a lot of organizing over the years. And, you know, there is this research evidence to suggest that when white people organize alongside black people, the white people become less racist. And that was one of the great values of labor unions for for years. And there were, there was a lot of there was a lot of racism in the in the labor movement, no doubt about it. Having said that, the evidence is clear that the mere act of of interacting and being part of a coalition on a common cause reduces racism. And so there are all sorts of side benefits to these these types of organized drives. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that because it's so good. It's so hopeful. I'll just give you one chance, though, epilogue. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you really wanted to make sure gets in here? I don't think so. I think you covered the ground really well and, <laughs> and made me think a lot. So thank you for Thank you. Um, OK, so make sure you join. Give me action so that you can find out what your next steps are to support the National Economic Fair Housing Act that we're obviously working on. Here you are. You were present in the first Yimby Richard Collenberg meeting about this uh, this federal policy. So thanks for listening and join us next time. Bye. Hey, everyone. Kenneth here, one of the Infill producers. If you're not already a member, go to yimbyaction.org and become a member today. Yimby Action is advocating for the policy solutions we need for abundant, affordable housing and inclusive, sustainable communities across the country. If you believe this work is important and valuable, I really want to urge you to become a supporting member. You can do that, as I said, by going to yimbyaction.org join. Thanks so much.